welcome to the program. This is Dr. Jack, and this is the place where we seek insight and understanding of the field of psychology through some of my early episodes with lectures and through conversations with diverse professionals as well as students in the field. So I know there are a gazillion podcasts out there, so I'm very humbled that you decided to stay and visit. So please grab your favorite beverage and get comfortable. Oh, uh, unless you're, you know, running or driving or whatever, <laughs> doing dishes like I normally do when I listen to podcasts. All right, so in today's episode, uh, I'm very excited because I finally have a chance to bring on students who are studying psychology. And these two students happen to be in different PhD programs, okay? Uh, one, Yi Kim Luo. I hope you pr- I pronounced that name right. I practiced like an hour. And she is located actually in the UK, studying at the University of Cambridge in a doctoral psychology program, as well as Katrina Rebez. And she's a clinical psych doctoral student at Vanderbilt University. And so what was kind of fun about this is that I actually found them on Twitter because they have a podcast as well called the High Impact Coffee Hour. And what drew me to it initially was their fantastic podcast art which, you know, I wish I could steal, but I can't, but it's really nice and uh, very professional looking. And basically to talk about graduate student life and interview other professionals in the field as well. So I had a chance to uh, chat with them on Twitter, then through email, and it's 12 months in the making. And we finally made the time because of all these time zone differences and just being busy in general to have to talk to them. And we dove into a lot of different topics, you know, my usual thing of, about talking about their uh, origin story, how they got started in psychology. I thought they're very, very interesting stories as well, especially for Ekim, who's an international student from China, how she made these decisions and the process of moving from overseas to study. Also, another shout-out for uh, Katrina has actually a community that has mentors and mentees, and they get together and support each other through the application process. So in this episode, we cover a lot of the good and the bad and the ugly in terms of their experiences in grad school and uh, the differences between the graduate school in the UK and the graduate school in the US as well. And you might find me talking a little bit more than usual, even when I have guests on. I think I took up a little bit too much airtime because I got so excited with these uh, topics that we're talking about. I end up sharing a lot of my own graduate school experience as well while we were having this discussion. Before we get started, here's a reminder. If you get some benefit from this podcast, I want this podcast to get even better. And the best way to do that is to support this podcast. And here are the ways you can do that. You can subscribe, follow, share on your social media, of course. And another important thing is to rate and review the podcast. I think that will also help with the algorithms and help it be discovered by other people. So, for example, on at the time of this recording on Apple Podcast platform, if you look up my ratings and review, there are only five ratings and one review. So that's pretty sad. Uh, there are over 50 ratings right now on Spotify. So uh, for those iPhone users, come on, you got to step it up a little bit. And the last way, uh, you know, it's always uncomfortable asking, but a lot of time and effort goes into making these podcasts. So why not support this podcaster with money? Yes. And so the ways you can do that in terms of supporting me directly is through the methods in the description below in the show notes, okay? And who knows, if I have enough 
direct supporters, then maybe one day I can get rid of all these annoying advertisements that are in the podcast. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started with today's episode. Okay, I'm excited to have my two guests that we've been trying to get together for about a year now through Twitter. And I have here Katrina and Ikim. Hello, how are you? Hello. Hi. Yeah, and these are two doctoral students. And this is the first time I believe that I've had doctoral students, uh, psychology students in general as guests. I plan to have more coming up to hear about your perspectives and your highs and lows and all that. And uh, but I also want to do and this is what I do with every guest is to hear their origin story, you know, kind of like a Marvel superhero kind of origin story. <laughs> Basically, like, at what point did you think about psychology as a field as a career path, that kind of thing? Like, how did it evolve from as a young person, and you're all still very young to to where you are now getting pursuing a PhD. And then we'll also talk about obviously what your career goals are, what, what do you expect you'll be doing and what you're doing now, that kind of thing. Okay. And obviously, a lot of my listeners and you guys have a podcast. So a lot of your listeners are probably like just starting out. Some of them probably in grad school, but a lot of them are just maybe just switched to being a psych major and have no idea what's ahead of them. So hopefully a lot of these podcasts that I'm doing can help them with that. So who would like to start to to talk about your experience? First of all, uh, Ekim, you're currently in Cambridge, right? Yes. A in the UK. And Katrina, you're at Vanderbilt University, right? But you're physically yes. now in Austin, which was a surprise to me. <laughs> I'm recording <Yep>. from <laughs> I'm recording from Dallas, but I normally I'm in Houston, so I'm sort of out of my normal uh, nest as well. But uh, okay, you get you guys start. I want to hear how you got into psychology. Um, you can, you I, can I, go first. Yeah, I can go first. Well, it's actually a bit of an embarrassing story. Yeah. Um, I wish it was a more inspiring story, but it's really not. Like what happened was basically I was like 14, 15 years old and I was watching this show called Lie to Me. Ah. Which, you know, it's built, like it's built upon Paul Eichmann's work on um, facial expressions, right? Like my expressions and reading people's mind. I remember that show. Yes, I remember yeah. that show. Yeah. Um, it, it's actually not that great of a show, like retrospectively. Today, I would not say this is my favorite show, but back then I was really obsessed with it. Um, and I thought to myself, wow, psychology is a, it's a thing. And it's really cool because you can like read people's minds and, you know, figure out what people are thinking and feeling. Um, which is something that I've always kind of like struggled with, um, which is understanding like a sequence of people's thoughts and people's mental states. Um, and I just find that incredibly interesting that we could actually infer what other people are feeling and thinking, even though we exist in our um, separate subjective realities. Mm -hmm. um, so this kind of shared reality is kind of my starting point into psychology that I was interested in, you know, what makes us empathize with each other and what makes us relate to one another? How do we really connect to each other as humans? And how do we derive meaning from these kind of connections? Um, and it, it ended up being what I'm doing for my PhD, which also was a bit of a coincidence because I did not connect it all the way back to when I was, you know, a teenager, but mm. actually, yeah, I kind of connected. Yeah. So I heard from Katrina in our previous conversation that you, you're an international student from China. Is that correct? Yes, I grew up in Shanghai. Yeah, Shanghai. Okay, my cousin's there. He has a small business, actually. <laughs> but they're under lockdown right now, which is kind of sad. All right, it's it's really, yeah, yeah it's 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 really tough over there. But anyway, um, so, so how far? What stage of school did you finish in China before you you 
went abroad for your higher level education. And, so and, and that's not a common major, is it, to study psychology in China, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, it's not. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really not. I um, didn't really know anything about psychology when I was growing up, but also my parents don't really care what I studied. I think maybe like if I decided to like be um be a professional artist or something, they might be like, um, would you want to like reconsider because you're pretty bad at it or something like that. But generally, they were pretty um, relaxed about what I chose to do. Hmm. So I could just explore my interests. And I also really loved reading when I was a kid. So I read a lot of different um, different fields, different books, different literature. Um, so I was able to explore my interests pretty broadly. Um, and then I just zeroed in on psychology around when I was probably 15, 16 years old. So by the time I graduated high school, I already knew this was the field I wanted to go in, mm -hmm. um, but not in the sense that I wanted to be a therapist right. or, or a counselor, because I actually never associated psychology with um, therapy necessarily. Wow. I see them unlike, as like unlike most American students. That's the first thing they think. Yeah, yeah. I know. It's like, oh, so you love listening to people's problems. I'm like, that's not what I do. Like, <laughs> yeah. So for yeah. the for the audience listening, remember, if you really don't have the patience to listen to people's problems, but you like psychology, there's still something for you to do. Absolutely. Yeah. I, non clinical, mm -hmm. right? I think that's what makes psychology so cool is that it's incredibly interdisciplinary. There's something for everybody. Like everybody is interested in some psychological facts and psych psychological science is so diverse in the kind of topic and the kind of career path that we can pursue that I think it's it's really the perfect fit if you're kind of the type of people or the type of person who kind of enjoys a little bit of everything and you want to tie you know your expertise and interests all together. I think this would be the field um, for you. You know, it's got quantitative sides, qualitative sides. It's, it's got amazing, you know, stats and it's got really cool concepts. It's got physiology. It's got cognition. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just really love psychology. But um, to answer your first question, mm -hmm. I finished middle school in Shanghai, China. And then after middle school, I did one year um, of high school in China, which is a different system than what it is in the U.S. Because in the U.S., you start high school when you're um, 15, so around the end of ninth grade, but in China, you start high school um, at 10th grade. So wow. then I finished yeah. uh, the 10th grade um, in China, and then I transferred to a Catholic high school in central Minnesota. Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a question there somewhere. <laughs> How did you go from Shanghai to Minnesota? Yeah. Is that okay for me to ask? Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah, okay. actually completely random. Yeah. Um, what, what happened was that my parents, um, wanted me to think about the kind of high school I wanted to go to. Um, then I gave them a list, which were like some of the top schools, um, in the U S cause back then I was like, yeah, why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I just aim high and go to like the best school ever. Right. Um, and they were like, okay, calm down. We need to be realistic here. <laughs> um, so they found me this like, uh, educational counselor who suggested this Catholic high school. And as to why he suggested this Catholic high school, I have no clue. Um, I think it's just because they had good academics. You know, most of my friends ended up getting to pretty um, prestigious universities. And I think it's just that um, it's kind of like the school in the region. If you wanted your kids to excel in university, yeah. um, take prep classes, do the IB program, et cetera. So then my parents asked me to apply and I did. Um, got in fairly quickly. I think I got the admissions letter like within a few days or something like that. Wow. It was quick. 
Um, so then it was just decided then that I would be going to this Catholic high school in central Minnesota. That's sort of a new domain for me to even think about that an international student would research about high schools. I normally think of you research <laughs> about colleges, right? Universities, but you actually research, but, and, and, and is your family or you Catholic? No, not right? at all. So you, so it's a Catholic, I'm assuming it's a private school, right? Yes. So there's tuition involved in all that. Wow. Yes. That's pretty impressive that you and your family actually, now, did your family do the research or did you actually find that as a teenager? You actually looked it up. Yeah, I did. Wow, I had that's like amazing. a binder with, yeah. um, like it was a thick binder. I used up a lot of ink. My parents complained a lot. I had like <laughs> tables, like Excel sheet style and highlighted areas of like different mm -hmm. stats about schools. Um, yeah, I, I just, um, I knew pretty early on, like around 12 or 13 that I didn't want to stay in China for mm -hmm. all of my education. Um, it just wasn't a great fit for me. And I know that it works for a lot of people like I know people who have done really well for themselves through the Chinese education system you know they yeah. would go on to excel in life become great scientists and doctors etc I know people who have done that it just wasn't a great fit for me um, because I'm quite flexible and quite alternative I think in my thoughts like I had a lot of weird ideas um, that weren't necessarily accommodated yeah. and also I was kind of weirdly good at math but really bad at physics and chemistry. So like, usually it's like in China, you have to kind of pick a camp, right? It's like, you are, you're either good at the sciences and math or, or the humanities, like English or literature or something like that. And I just couldn't quite pick a camp. Um, so I wanted to go somewhere where I could explore my interests and just do random things, even if, even if I was bad at it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I researched a lot about high schools in the US because okay. I knew I wanted to go. That is such an interesting uh, origin story and such uh, initiative for a young person to take. Um, okay, let's switch gears. Talk to Katrina. You're still here. Hi. And uh, so what is your origin story? Because you told me a little bit about your background. But I, I want to hear a little bit more detail about that. Yeah, yeah. First, I also want to say that Ekim is probably the most organized person I've ever met. So I definitely believe the binder story and they probably had a great skill set, right? For a researcher. Huge, yeah. Huge, she already yeah. had the skill set of a researcher, right? Doing Excel huge spreadsheets and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Origin story for psych. So also when I was pretty young, I actually, I associated psychology with a lot of uh, the therapy and like mental health aspect mm -hmm. and just uh, wanting to help people and talk to people because I always liked listening to people rather than talking about <laughs> myself. So I always figured, oh, psychology would actually be a great um, fit for that. And it was always interesting learning more about human minds and, and thoughts and people's behaviors, um, especially from like a cultural perspective, because yeah. growing up in the Middle East my entire life, uh, mental health and uh, mental illnesses in particular were also were very stigmatized and no yeah. one really talked about them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it very much was something that was a taboo issue growing up. And I always thought that it was such a shame to see people suffering in silence and not being able to get the help that they needed. Um, so I also read a lot of books by Jody Pickles, <laughs> where there were lots of psychology um, topics, especially criminal psychology. Mm. And I was maybe thinking, oh, maybe I could go into criminal law, but that, they don't do anything with psychology, really. Um, yeah. So I was interested just in psychology throughout since eighth grade, I'd say, and wow. kept with it. 
um, until I got to university. And that's when I first discovered the research side of things. And that's when my interest sparked in uh, research in academia and, and pursuing a PhD uh, because I was able to get into a really cool lab my freshman year. And since then, things have just been gone, just sort of spiraled. And I think things just sort of happened. I was at, sort of at the right place at the right time, including meeting Ekim, I think. I was at the right I place. I meant to place. ask that. How did you yeah, but yeah. how did you meet each other? Yeah. We actually, it's so funny. We met at Cambridge. We did a <laughs> summer program together. Oh, cool. um, and uh, that's when I learned that I think honestly, Ekim really pushed me, even though they probably don't realize it, that Ekim was sort of like the inspiration to really go and pursue this PhD program because they were pursuing a PhD program that next year and they had this whole spreadsheet and this list of people that they were applying towards. And Spreadsheets were again, up, huh? Yep, 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 <laughs> setting up meetings yeah. with people. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. I need to do this and you get on top of it. Um, and so ever since then, I've been talking to Ekim about the PhD journey and that's why we really wanted to start the podcast and talk about um, yeah. what, what it's been like to do all of that. Yeah. What's great about your podcast also is you have you interview quite a lot of different people, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and the focus is on research. So the past two guests I've had uh, recently are clinicians, right? Oh, two or three, and so it, it's it's fun to to talk about the diversity of the field, right? Mm -hmm. It's a whole mm -hmm. different quadrant, and so for both of you, your career paths are likely to lead to, I'm guessing, uh, academia research, right? Uh, or, or private research. I mean, tell me what kind of research you guys are doing now. Uh, Katrina, you can start with, with your research interests. Yeah, so so I'm in a clinical psychology program, which sort of mm -hmm. gives people the option of going into the clinician sort of world or right. staying in academia doing research. And then there's also like this um, in-between world where you can work for a medical university and do clinical work, split your time between that and also research. Um, and then, of course, industry too, where you can go out and do private research, uh, data science, stuff like that. So um, the program that I'm in right now definitely stresses the academia part and the research and making sure that you put research above everything else. Um, so that that's how I would describe yeah. the program that I'm yeah. in. Yeah, and I think you're, you sent me some links. Um, you already have some publications in your name, right? Yeah, because thankfully, that's again, amazing. being yeah. part of that lab my freshman year, my yeah. PI was super supportive and really helped uh, me get my first publication. So yeah, 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 that's, that's really awesome. How about you, Ekim? Um, I just remember that I forgot to send you my bio. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. I'll ask you about it now. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what I should do from now on is to not request the bios of my guests. And I kind of go in sort of with a blank slate and just allow my curiosity to just sort of, you know, and then, and then discover for the first time what people do. It's almost like finding some stranger off the streets. Hey, you want to be on my podcast and then discover what they do yeah. for a living. Okay. You can tell me now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I mean, um, I'm in a research-based uh, program here at Cambridge. So uh, a PhD program in, in the UK is kind of different from what it is in the US in that it's not always categorized into different sub areas of psychology. So for example, in my program, I'm just enrolled in a general psychological program. Um, I actually don't know what my PhD degree is going to say when I finish, like I, maybe experimental psychology or psychology, something like that. Hmm. Um, yeah, I'm actually disorganized about like the, the, like the bureaucracy part of academia. So I don't really understand how um, things exactly work yet. But um, um, from like a day-to-day -day basis, I'm just doing 
research, running experiments, analyzing data, and um, writing up results and dealing with um, participant messages, stuff like that. Um, yeah, that that is the main content of my day to day. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. What, what did you ask? Right, my research interests. Yeah, there you um, go. Yes, <laughs> I study empathy. Um, oh. I, I study specific components of empathy, including mentalizing, um, which which commonly is referred to as perspective taking. So this is about understanding somebody else's um, thoughts and feelings, um, and also emotional contagion, which is more affective and more bottom up. Um, and um, I, I guess in popular science terms, maybe it, it can be perceived as feeling what somebody else is feeling. There you go. There you go. And I think for both of you, and I remember I went to an APA, American Psych Association convention many years ago, and I just randomly attended a uh, media psychology session. And what they were trying to do, and, and you guys are probably going to be good at this already, is that most researchers live in sort of this statistical research method world. But then mm -hmm. when they try to train them, for example, they just ask them within 60 seconds, describe in everyday layman's terms, what your research is about. And they end up talking about correlational coefficients and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then they said, no, 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 no. Joe off the street is not going to understand that, right? Why is your work important? You need to be able to communicate that because sooner or later, a journalist will come and they're going to take a little sound bite of what you do. And you got to be able to do that. I worked in MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston uh, in tobacco research during my grad school years, right? And I would see my principal investigator, my supervisor, who would be on TV once in a while talking about, you know, the latest, uh, you know, smoking cessation research they're doing, whatever. And in the news, especially local news, they'll take 15 seconds, you know, they'll sit there for an hour, interview you, and then take 15 seconds of what you actually say. And so he's learned to condense and simplify like bullet point style, right? And so I thought that was really fascinating that researchers, at least during that APA session, had such a tough time. And then I realized that's what instructors do really well, right? Um, is that we take information and just sort of spit it out to in various ways that... So uh, are you guys challenged in that area to, in your class, in your coursework, by your instructors to be able to sort of just explain things in, in, in a simplified way, your, your, your yeah. research. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I'd like to believe that I'm, I'm quite good at talking about my research to people mm -hmm. who don't know anything about psychology. Yeah. Um, I think to me, it's actually a bit of a reverse problem because if you just like find a random Joe on the street and you tell them that you study psychology, they think they know something about it, right? It's one of those fields where everybody thinks that they know something about, but it's like the majority of what common people think psychologists do um, and what psychologists do um, is typically false or, or it's just misinformation. Hmm. Um, so like, I, I think the challenge for me is actually, um, you know, just for people to like patronize what I do and to tell me that what I do doesn't sound that hard or it just sounds hmm. super easy. Um, but it's like, well, I study empathy, and people, everybody will say, well, I know something about empathy. How is this difficult? But yeah, yeah like the research design is difficult. The data analysis is difficult. And what I get is scientific facts. And what you get is just what you think to be true. It's a personal opinion versus a scientific fact. Um, mm -hmm. So I think to me, the challenge is actually reversed. Um, but I'm not going to overcome that challenge because I think it is less productive to try to talk your research up, um, to use jargons and to make it more complicated. Yes. 
Um, I would rather for my research to, do, to be easily understood so that more people can learn about it, so that more people can be interested in it and understand how it works um, as opposed to the opposite. So, so it's, I guess it's a problem that I will never solve. That's so well put, Ika. Um, yeah, honestly, it's funny because there is such an issue of academics living in this sort of bubble of not really being able to explain their research and just sort of submitting research to a journal that only five people read. And so yeah, what's yeah. the point of it if you're not really trying to actively get other people to be involved, be invested, be interested in what you're doing and really trying to understand the results of what you've come up with? in the most basic terms possible because everything that we're doing can be explained and can be boiled down to very simple elements um, yeah. for people to understand. So I definitely think science communication is one of the more important skills that yeah. I don't know if we actively learn about in our programs. Yeah, it's sort of like in clinical programs, they never teach you about how to run a business. Right? Yeah. That's, that's what I'm getting right. from the clinicians is that, uh, did, where'd you learn about this? Well, I had to take a special, course after I graduated or, or a training session on how to start a business and you know that kind of thing but uh, I'll tell you my experience with one class in my doctoral uh, my advisor was a graduate of Stanford okay and she studied under Albert Bandura okay oh my god she was actually in one of those old videos and she was like oh see that's me when I was a research assistant with Albert Bandura wow. so, she, so so she's like and then you know she and she accepted I was her primary uh advisee right so she was very intimidating and at University of Houston we kept joking about how she has Stanford standards you know <laughs> not, <laughs> not that University of Houston is that bad okay but but it's like you know someone like that's very intimidating and so we would have our class and you know how big are your classes? Because we had like six or seven people in our seminar, right? And um, we would have to read a stack of articles, research, social psychology, okay? And um, and then we would go in and she would just basically say, uh, Jack, okay, just tell us what this article was about, right? It sounds so simple. But then in our in our graduate student minds, we kept reciting the, you know, the abstract, you know what I mean? We, we, we fail to just be able to just converse with it in everyday language. And uh, so even though that was the scariest class we've ever taken and one of the most challenging, but I think that really helped in the evolution of how I ended up becoming an instructor was I always, I always kept that in mind. It's like, why is it important, right? How can you explain it in very simple terms? Mm -hmm. right? and, and I think what you're doing is so important, but but like Katrina said, you know, and you can, you know, the, the, the greater world needs to understand it as well. And you have to be able Absolutely. to communicate it. Yeah. 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 I, I was actually recently teaching this um, introductory course to Python and I had to start off with the very basics, right? So like, this is what Python is. Here's the history of Python and here's the Dutch guy who wrote it. Um, and like, this is what a variable is and this is how you print hello world. So like the very fundamentals and I found that to be quite challenging because you really have to take a step back from the materials that you are so familiar with and see it with a fresh pair of eyes as if you were seeing it for the very first time. It's like to somebody who doesn't know a single thing about what it is that you're trying to teach them, how can you communicate with them in a way that would you know, engage them, that would interest them, that would make them want to hear more. And I found it helpful to relate this to other um, more complicated things that you can do with the material. So for example, instead of just teaching them like, here's what a variable is, I tell them well, you need to learn these basic things because 
you need these fundamental building blocks in order to write more complicated codes, for example, so and so. And I found this to be um, quite helpful. Um, yeah, I forget my point, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just about communicating example. complex subjects. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So are yeah. you also a teaching assistant uh, in, in grad school? So yeah, okay, that's excellent. Um, oh, but, but you're teaching your own course. Right, or are you teaching a are you teaching assistant for an a professor? Ah, uh, yeah. So, so um, the so the Cambridge system is quite weird. Mm. So we can do, for example, supervisions. So those are kind of like small uh, small scale group learning um, experiences, and I don't do that anymore. Mm. Um, so I teach as a part of the bioinformatics training facility. Um, at as part as a part of this course, you can either TA or you can also lead some of the training sessions because right. essentially we're just live coding and, and showing people like how to do certain things. Um, so, so for this particular Python course, I was leading some of the sessions. Um, so for other courses in this facility, I might just be shadowing along and TAing and helping answer questions, stuff yeah. like that. It's good that you're getting that experience because one day if you're a faculty member somewhere, right, you're gonna have some teaching responsibilities in addition to your research. And Katrina, yeah. in grad school, are you doing more, you mentioned labs at some point, or, or are you interested or have you done uh, teaching assistantships? Yeah, so in my program, we really have to divide our time between teaching, mm -hmm. clinical work, practicum, research. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, and just make sure that we're balancing all of that. And, and also classes, uh, the clinical program for some reason, I think because of the APA standards uh, requires right. several classes for the full five years that or however long you're there. Um, so balancing all of that is definitely the uh, struggle <laughs> that I think uh, most people in the program have. But next year is when I'm going to actually start teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure exactly what my position is yet. They have not told yeah. us. So waiting for that, but looking forward to it because I think that that's such an important skill to be able to sort of express this, these bits and pieces of information from a very basic level. Um, and just, I think helping students and just making yourself available to them will also be very uh, rewarding. Yeah. Okay, so talking more about grad school life, um, are your programs the kind where you enter with a bachelor's degree and then there's an expectation that you'd pick up a master's along the way, one of those combined doctoral programs? So or, yeah, or, for... yeah, or is it separate, like a term, what they call a terminal master's degree, and then you have to reapply to go into a PhD program? So for mine, they kind of just integrate the master's mm -hmm. program as part of it. So after your second year, you get your master's if you pass the qualifying exam, yeah. and then you continue on to get your PhD. Um, yeah. There's no terminal master's degree program available, right. um, but you can choose, I guess, to quit after you get your master's degree. Yeah. And, and someone with the master's already can also enter the program yes. as well, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was very similar to mine. To my program was like that yeah and uh ikim what about your program your program is very different because you're in the yeah. uk yeah it, it's quite different here um because a phd program takes a uh, typically between three to five years um i think most people finish around four years and mm. um just the PhD portion of the program, you don't get a master's out of it. Um, technically, you could master out after one year because we have to go through a viva after the first year 
um, and you have to write up like a mini thesis essentially um, and pass like a degree committee meeting um, to say, okay, you've passed this and you're now a PhD candidate. So it's kind of similar to the US in that sense, but it's not that you get a master's automatically. Yeah. Um, it's only if you quit your PhD, then, then they might just give you a master's instead. So it's like, ha, you didn't waste all of your time here. Congratulations. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. good. But yeah, but my understanding is that in the US, most programs are like two plus three, right? So it's two years master's and then you finish with um, with a master's and a PhD. Right, right. And if it's a and PhD for those uninitiated, generally it's a research focused degree, right? No matter what field of of uh, that you're going into, whether it's an English PhD or history PhD or psychology PhD, PhD really refers to uh, research, right? Uh, yeah. Even though someone goes into clinical, they still have to do a research dissertation or or a, a master's thesis along the way, right? Yeah. Um, and and I remember uh, some episodes back, I would give advice about that, and and I would say unless you're totally sure this is what you're gonna do, and you have a bachelor's degree, you know that's a huge commitment to go into like a five, six, seven year program, you know, in the U.S. Right. And, uh, and I said, you know, if you're not sure, get a master's degree first, right? Because you're, you're bound to, it's easier to finish, right? There's a lot of stuff you can do with a master's in psych, especially for those counselors, right? Get licensed, you can, you can do fine as a therapist. Um, but obviously as a researcher, you want to become an academic in a university, then you have to go the PhD route, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, do you have, I don't know if you're there long enough to know, but do you have classmates or heard of people who just had a rough time because of this, um, this, this combined program yeah. where they, they actually ended up quitting or just wasn't a good fit for them after all? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the case for probably both Katrina and I. We probably mm -hmm. both know people like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's like that was the case when you were doing your PhD, but like in grad school, people love complaining about things. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> eternal. Yeah, yeah. It's a way to bond with your classmates. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, like the more serious ones are like, oh, my supervisor is very abusive or toxic. And then like if, if like all the way to the lightest possibility of like the dining hall food is really shit. Um, mm. But yeah, there's always something to complain about. Um, I, I support this. I think complaining is healthy. It helps you yeah. um, stay sane. Um, nothing wrong with it. But um, yeah, I definitely know people who are quite burnt out. Um, maybe one year into a PhD program, they felt like this wasn't necessarily the thing for them. But at that point, sunk cost kind of kicks in because you think to yourself, well, you're kind of, you've spent a year or maybe two or three on this PhD. Why would you quit now? Um, but I also think it's a, it's a bureaucracy problem. So academia isn't necessarily all amazing. And to be yeah. honest, when I applied to PhD programs, I didn't know that PhD meant academia necessarily. Mm. Um, it's not that I thought PhD meant something else. I just didn't think what a PhD meant. I just thought to myself, I wanted to do research. Yeah. Um, and this seemed to be the path for people who wanted to do research. But after I started my PhD, now that I'm in my second year, I realized that um, as you progress into your research career, becoming a professor doesn't necessarily mean that you get to dedicate the majority of your time to research. And in fact, I think I spend most of my time on research and that's really, um, I'm really grateful for that. And I think I'm really lucky in that sense because um, 
the professors that I know don't necessarily get to allocate so much of their time to explore their own research interests. Um, so it's kind of a weird situation where like, you know, people like me get into it because we want to do research. But once, for example, if one day I climb up the ladder and I become a professor, I don't actually necessarily get to do as much research as I would yeah. want. Um, so yeah, it's a bit weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very similar things to Ikim. Uh, I've definitely heard of some people who've had to drop out of their program because yeah. they realized that the professor, the, the uh, principal investigator that they're working with was not the mentor that they wanted or yeah. needed. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's tough though, thinking about it in your head of like that sunk cost fallacy just kicking in and thinking oh I can I can handle this for the next few yeah. years of my life it's not a big deal but then really having to start over again and uh, prioritize yourself and your happiness because although it seems like it's maybe a short amount of time it is so integral to the rest of your life if, especially if you want to get into academia they're going to be sort of your forever mentor and that's why there's so much pressure for people to choose proper programs and I think the interview day that you get with people or meeting people through email doesn't really give you a look into what this person's going to be like uh, for the next how many years of your life so I think that's like the main thing that people struggle with um, yeah. in their PhDs because if you have a supportive system and supportive yeah. um, person who you're working with I think that that can make things infinitely easier yes. absolutely yes. yeah yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm, go ahead um, I also wanted to mention that even though I do know people who, um, you know, just didn't have a great time in their lab and they they didn't feel like they could necessarily do anything about it. I actually also know people who, for example, switched labs and switched mm -hmm. supervisors and things did work out for them after the switch and that they were actually able to be more productive and produce the kind of research that they actually wanted. Um, you know, usually because they might disagree with their supervisor about the direction of their research project, etc. So it's not necessarily that if you're not having a great time in grad school for a prolonged period of time, then you are doomed or you have to leave academia or you have to drop out or master out. There are options that you can take. And I would say if someone's having a hard time in their PhD program, they should think about what exactly is causing them yes. to, to not, you know, be passionate about the program anymore. Because honestly, I think there's zero financial incentive for anybody to start a PhD program. Like, mm -hmm. oh, unless, yeah, totally. you really, <laughs> unless you really love what you do, there is no other point because you get no financial, um, like you don't get the kind of job that you would get straight with a bachelor's degree in psychology. Like my friends who, who started working after a bachelor's are in great financial situations compared to me. Um, but I tell myself every day that I really love what I do. It is also true, but it's some it, it's a constant reminder that I have to, you know, give myself. Um, so really, if you if you feel the passion is winding down and that you're no longer enjoying what you do, think about why that is and if there's anything that you can do. And it's completely fine to drop out if you find that this is just not the thing that you want to do with your life anymore. But don't give up because you're, you know, don't get bullied out of a program because of a toxic supervisor or a toxic environment you can change that yeah i think that's great advice and i think for prospective grad students sometimes we feel like we're in a situation that oh we're, we're just happy to get in anywhere but really in fact you should be in the position to interview them are they so it's not just am i good enough to be in their program but will they serve my needs as well is this someone i'm willing to work with because 
when I was on an interview committee, you know, interviewing prospective PhD students, that was sort of the overarching. It wasn't so much their credentials. Everyone has great credentials by that point, right? So they're all kind of equal on paper, but it's whether personality-wise, uh, their integrity, is this someone you can see working with for the next four to five years? So I think as a for those listening out there who want to go to grad school, you know, that's a huge financial, personal commitment. You also have to think about, okay, is the person I'm interviewing with who is in the area that I'm interested in, is that someone I can see working with? For the, for the foreseeable future. And then also you just never know, right? Because in the interview, everybody's putting on their best face. And then when you start working there, they suddenly turn to a dragon or, or you know, whatever. And, and that, and but I think that's great advice, Ekim, is that it's not just about staying or quitting. You can also, just like any corporate environment, you have to see it that way. You can make changes, constructive changes. And also, you know, like if you're in a corporate environment, you talk to HR, human resources about it, right? So in academia, you're not immune from all these problems, personnel problems and and politics and those kinds of things, right? They're all there. Sometimes we think of academia as this pure place, you know, oh, it's not like private industry. No, it's exactly the same. There's backstabbing, there's jealousy, there's, Absolutely. you know, yeah, people mm -hmm. who will love and support you or they're supervisors who are threatened by you because you're so brilliant and they, they put you down, right? Or or during a dissertation defense, they'll purposely sabotage you, right? That kind of thing. When in fact, they should be trying to get you out, you know? Uh, it looks better on the university if you can graduate more students, right? But it's, it's hit and miss, but hopefully it's more good than bad for most students out there, right? But I think yeah. that's a great point. There's no shame. And I think there's a lot of shame and guilt involved with being a grad student, especially in psychology, because that's sort of what we know. That's our field. <laughs> and and I, I'm on Twitter and I follow a lot of these grad students and, and I'm seeing a lot of these, yeah, I got into grad school kind of tweets, right? Then I see a bunch of others like, oh, I don't know, is academia for me? I just yes. quit. <laughs> yeah, right? There's like a whole variety of these suffering celebratory Dichotomy. i know yes. i know yeah i was yeah. just telling Ekim that that's all my twitter feed is it's like oh very exciting academia news and then the next tweet is like i'm leaving academia this is why and i yeah. hate it here and, and yeah. it's, it's yeah. so it's so confusing yeah. for, for I, I was so close to quitting myself and i was right. at that abd all but dissertation phase right so wow. i finished all my coursework all my clinical stuff I just had to finish my dissertation. And oh. unlike you guys, I was just not a great research mind, okay? I just not great at statistics. And, and also there was that fear and kept procrastinating because it's such a big project, right? I did Definitely. one episode only about this ABD mentality, right? There's so much shame because as each year passes, right? It's like you lose momentum. You no longer feel like, because you're not on campus anymore, right? You're done and you're just living a normal life. You may even have a full-time job somewhere and that's yeah. just hanging over your head and you still have to Oof. pay tuition every year. You get threatening letters every year from your university. <laughs> it went For me, it went from, hey, you're doing great. And then the next letter is like, oh, you're doing great, but you should focus on your dissertation. Then, then a couple years later, it's like, well, if you don't finish by this date, you're going to have to take your qualifying exams again, right? And I think oh that's, my that's when the panic monster kicked in. It's like, oh, that's how I finished. And I was ABD for too long. Then once I became a full-time faculty, I created an ABD support group. And this is at a community college level. So I, th I was thinking, well, maybe they're not that many because community colleges, you require a master's degree to teach. I didn't mm -hmm. know that there how many doctoral level people were there at the college. But then it's like they're hiding under rocks. They come out and say, they email me mm -hmm. saying, I'm ABD, I'm ABD, I'm ABD, you know. And then we had the support group and we helped them finish. 
right? Just through mm -hmm. emotional support, right? That That's first step. Right, yeah. yeah, contact your advisor. And that was like the most horrifying step for them. They're so ashamed. They, they feel like they're going to get rejected or get shamed. And then mm -hmm. they, they come back to the group a month later and say, oh, my advisor was so happy to hear from me. And they're going to support me and just help me finish. And, and they eventually did, right? And so, yeah, graduate, graduate school is not for everyone. But it's not even about whether you're 4.0 or 3.5 GPA, right? It's yeah. just about a lot of it's luck, like where you are, you get support. So much of it is luck. Yeah. 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 Also, like, definitely, I, I feel like this is probably, this might be just a me issue, but I didn't know about what a PhD program was before I applied. Um, I really only went because I wanted to do research. I loved research in undergrad and I wanted to keep doing exactly the same thing. Um, yeah, not the case. I only found out maybe a couple weeks ago and like I'm a second year. So this is really embarrassing, right? That I have to write a dissertation mm. um, of yeah. like 200 pages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I found out, I was like, yeah, so I'm going to quit because like there's no way I'm going to write 200 yeah. pages. So, and, and then people were like, oh, you can put in like graphs and tables. It's going to be fine. And it's going to be like references. I'm like, yeah, no, even then, like I'm not going to have 200 pages of graphs. That would still be too much for me. So learn about the basics of what a PhD program is. Talk to yeah. someone who is nearing the end, someone who's starting out. Talk to people at different stages to learn the information that you need to make an informed decision. And don't rely on anecdotes and don't rely on just like passion of the moment. Right. Um, like I did. Find out all the information you need before you make that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a yeah. big Yeah, especially for first-gen students who really don't know anything about this process or don't have the support or don't have people who are around them who are constantly being able to tell them exactly what the steps are, um, what to expect. Um, it can be very, very daunting for people to just go into it and then get all this information thrown at them at once. Because I think, I think a lot of the times applications for PhD programs are kept vague on purpose for mm -hmm. that reason, just to make sure mm -hmm. that um, people aren't scared away in a, in a sense. And that's why I think mentorship is super important and just making yeah. sure that you do talk to people and um, you do have those people who've gone through it before who can sort of guide you and help you and give you tips and tricks uh, for things to happen. And there's actually a really good online community called mm. Psyching Out. I don't know if you've uh, no, seen that. Uh, Send me Jack, a link later. I'll put it in the I will, description. I yeah. will. Yeah. And I'm helping out with uh, creating this mentorship program for where we pair people with their research interests to incoming applicants. Um, and we also try to pair them up with identity groups too, so that they feel comfortable with people who are like in the 30 plus group, parent uh -huh. group, married group, uh, BIPOC group. So mm. I think that's super important and hopefully that helps people. But again, it's like, again, such a luck thing too. And all about really who you know, what you know. And in that sense, it's very much like a corporation too. So it's yeah. uh, it just make sure that you take advantage of as much help as you can get, especially if you know that this is something that you want to do and this is something that you're passionate about and can see yourself getting into. Yeah, and you have to be part of a community, no matter yeah. how small it is, right? Even if it's 100%. two two friends going through the same process. Mm -hmm. And and to your point, Ekim, you know, no one's really gonna know exactly every step along the way ahead of time, right? It is a, a little bit of a blind faith. Once you start, then you discover, yeah, you may know that there's a dissertation, but you really don't know what that is, right? Mm -hmm. You may know that there's a clinical requirement, but what's that like? And so, I think for the undergrads out there, look for grad students or on social media or 
you know, message E. Kim and Katrina say, Please do. Hey, what, what did you do to apply to grad school that really helped? I had one listener. I did a short uh, episode on applying to grad school just based on, and a lot of my stuff might be outdated, but it was just sort of general things to focus on in your application. And I had one listener who said that she listened to my episode three times and she applied to her, and she got wow. into the school of her choice. And that made wow. me feel so good. That's that my amazing. advice was still good like 20 years later <laughs> for That's getting it yeah for getting that into grad school and, but also you know talk, it's not just about getting in but talk to uh for the undergrads talk to grad students so they can give you some insight about what life is like the mm -hmm. good and the bad mm -hmm. and then as grad students we should you should be talking to faculty who work in areas that you might think of yourself working in and ask them what is it like what do you like or don't like about it what are the challenges about it Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so you get a realistic expectation of what that is. For example, you know, I started social psych like you, Ikim, I didn't know that this was going to be an academic research position for most social psychologists. Right. And then I, I realized that although I love social psych, I, I'm not sure if I'm cut out to be a publish or perish kind of person, you know, publishing 10 articles a year or trying to get tenure somewhere. So then I switched to counseling psych. Then I realized, well, this is a PhD program is going to require research as well, a dissertation, right? So if I had known better from the beginning, if I did a little bit more digging around and, and explored what my true interest was, I probably would have gone to a counseling psych master's program, get my mm -hmm. master's in counseling, maybe go out there and work a little bit, get my license, and then think about, do I need a PhD? And why would I want a PhD or a PsyD degree where research mm -hmm. is optional and you focus all on clinical work, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever field someone's choosing within psychology, you got to do that legwork because that once you commit to a graduate program, it's such a huge commitment that you don't want to feel like you made a mistake, right? You know, finance, it's a huge financial commitment too, right? Like you, you're saying, <laughs> you have your friends who, who graduate a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree working as an auto mechanic or, or a nurse and they're like, no debt, you know, have a good retirement plan and, and we're here starving with debt as grad students. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but we shouldn't be here scaring people away from grad school either. <laughs> so talk about what what are your joys of graduate school? What do you love about it? You can Better answer quickly. Don't don't hesitate yeah, too long. I know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, I think really like what Ekim said is that you really realize that you wake up every day getting to do the thing that you're really passionate about, and that you really have a lot of freedom in the things that you research in discovering new things and that for a brief moment in time, you are the only person who knows this one thing and you're hoping to sort of share it with the world. And I think that's the exciting part of like being a scientist and doing this research and, and learning all these new things. And I think being a student and just being able to continue learning and, and viewing life in that sense that you're always learning, you're always accumulating new knowledge is super exciting. Um, and so every day feels just like a new little adventure. I think, um, and being able to also surround ourselves with incredible people like like you both and just having that support and community and knowing that there are brilliant people out there who unfortunately get crushed by the system because it is yeah. an awful system. Right. Um, but there are just so many amazing people in in this world. Yeah, I, I think to me, I, I'm really passionate about what I do. Um, like, the feeling that I get when I was a teenager and when I first learned about how the mind works, I still get, I still get that feeling today, this euphoria whenever you have a good research idea or you read a really cool paper or you find out about a really interesting result. It's just still mind blowing to me. 
And um, and just tying back to what you said earlier about you know making an informed decision, there are also things that you can do to make your program um, a very good experience as well. Even if you didn't necessarily start off in like the exact perfect fit. Um, like for example, when I started, I actually didn't have funding to do any neuroimaging studies. I didn't know anything about, for example, um, fMRI or EEG. Um, but I really, really wanted to look at the physio physiological underpinnings of empathy in addition to behavioral measures. Um, and I was able to, you know, get this training opportunity um, with with a scientist that I've admired for quite some time. And you know, amazing thing amazing things can still happen in your program and you can still have these really incredible opportunities if you, you know, combined with a little bit of luck, you can still make them happen. Um, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, this was entirely because of my own hard work. I've had the support of my supervisor and I've had supportive grad school friends. Um, all of these factors make for very joyful experiences in grad school. And I think you know, this is what makes a PhD program so great. You get to do research and you get to meet these fun people and you get to work for scientists that you read about in papers and you yeah. books you admire, whose books you have on your shelf, stuff like that. And I still think it's the coolest experience ever. And I would not take it back, even, even, even if it meant I still have to write the 200 pages. <laughs> There's an important lesson there because I've, I've, the other people I've talked to as well is that a lot of their op opportunities came about because they took the proactive step to contact someone, whether it's just by email or whatever. And, and like you said, even though they might be very well known or author of something or whatever, that they actually, they're people, you know, and, and people always, no matter what their level is, they're always, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, gratified or, or excited that someone is asking them questions, especially someone who's looking, you know, looking up to them. And so more likely than not, they will respond. And I think sometimes younger people might be, uh, you know, younger students might be intimidated. It's like, well, you know, what, what if I say the wrong thing? You know, am I smart enough or blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And, and then not make that step. But you just never know what doors are going to open. And it might take yeah. a slightly different path than what you originally thought. I and mean, that's okay. You know, you got to be really flexible and, and look for those opportunities and sometimes create them. Right. And not just assume that, oh, I signed up for this on day one and that's my destiny and I can't change it. You know, like it's a contract. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I get that it's um, it can be quite scary to take those steps and to email someone you admire, you know, even if it's just for like a chat at a conference. I still get intimidated all the time about contacting um, people that I admire or even just emailing my supervisor. You know, I think maybe a lot of grad students can relate to this, but sometimes you just get insecure and you think maybe you're asking for help where about something that you should be able to solve independently. But this is a learning experience. And what helps me overcome those insecurities is when I remind myself, well, I really need help on this issue or I just really want to know about this particular topic, for example, and I want a meeting with this guy because he's an expert on this thing, or I want a meeting with this person because she can help me solve this particular problem. So focus on the issue itself and focus on the reason why you wanted to reach out to this person in the first place. And um, hopefully you can overcome, you know, this like great intimidation this way. 100%. Yeah, I think there's a huge lesson in just if you don't ask, you don't get anything. So might as well right. just put yourself out there. And worst case scenario, they don't talk to you. They don't say anything to you and they're busy and whatever. But yeah. at least you tried and at least you put yourself out there and maybe they'll remember you years from now thinking like, oh, this person took initiative. Yeah. Maybe now is the time that I can 
reach out. That's probably not, not going to happen. But I love ideally... how you're like, if they didn't reply to you, they will still remember you years later and be like, oh, there's that email. I forgot. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be that position, that person. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that, that yeah. Especially if you're a podcast host and people reach out and then you just forget to write them back. And they're like, oh, right. these people. <laughs> they're so uppity. And, and also, um, when it comes to podcasting, I think it's so brave. I, I feel like it's so brave for anyone to start a podcast because you're putting yourself out there, right? Even more so than a blog, right? It's your your voice. And and for me, I'm in the field of psychology. I have a doctor degree and I, I'm a teacher and all that. But, you know, there's this deep down fear that somebody's going to out me. Somebody's going to find out that I really don't know as much as I think I know. Or someone's gonna say you got that fact really wrong. Say, <laughs> like, oh, I can't believe you never heard of this writer or that psychologist, right? And I think that's the the imposter syndrome kicking in. I really felt that in grad school. I felt that during my clinical internship when they chose three interns out of over a hundred to two hundred applicants. And so I remember the three of us were there, and we're all staring at each other, like thinking that other person must be really brilliant. And how did I get in? And then luckily we just hauled, had all this sort of honest discussions like, yeah, we neither either of us thought that we belonged there and that's okay. You know, that's just reality. That, and then we realized that, okay, yeah, yeah, we belong here. It's okay. <laughs> so yeah. there's like a, there's a balance between insecurity and, and arrogance, right? You got to find that sort of nice, comfortable, confident yes. level. And, and it's, yeah, I think it was just my third or fourth year of grad school before I felt like, okay, if I speak up, you know, my ideas have some value, right? And I think it takes a while to get that voice, right? Would you agree? Do you feel like you've had that, you have that voice now? Or are you still kind of working on that? Definitely working on that. Definitely working on it too, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because when we start our podcast, I think, Ikim and I don't think that we are the experts in any sense. We want mm -hmm. to hear from the experts that we invite on. Yeah. Um, and But it's good to know that that imposter syndrome can like strike at any moment for any people but you're right it, it has to be a balance between arrogance and insecurity and just making sure that you talk to other people and like you said you spoke to your two other people who were in that internship program with you um and you made it more of like a collaborative fun talking time and instead of looking at it as a competition between um all three of you and i think that that's the important thing to take forward it's just everyone that you're surrounded with in your group should be someone that you're cooperating with and wanting to be around and making sure that you're pushing each other up because it's already difficult enough as it is yeah yeah uh i want to have you guys back on some at some point like a lot of my guests there's just so much to to unpack and maybe when you're in your nth year of grad school it'd be great to see like an update <laughs> of how you guys are doing That'll whether awesome. you're whether you're whether you're like you quit and you decide to do <laughs> yeah. something else full time you've had it with academia or <laughs> Or yeah. you're, you're, you got a new faculty job somewhere, you know, you just don't know, right? And, <laughs> um, okay, so in the remaining minutes, I really want to just sort of ask the, the prototypical counseling question, was, which is, where do you see yourself five years from now? Gosh, I know that's kind of lame, but that's the only thing no, I can no, think of right good. now. <laughs> it's not. Uh, I see myself postdocing, actually. I, I thought it through. Um, I thought, you know, I weighed the options of joining the industry and making just cashing in my PhD for, for a lot of money. And I um, honestly, the primary thing that really swayed me 
um, towards the decision to stay in academia and keep on doing science is I think to myself, well, I could cash in my PhD and make a shitload of money probably um, at, I don't know, Google or Amazon or Facebook or something. They're, they love social psychologists over there is what I've been told. Um, but in the long term, it does not advance humanity, right? Yeah. Essentially, no matter what it is that I do, no matter how no matter what story I tell myself, you know, maybe I'm getting my research out there and it's going to impact a million users or whatever. Essentially, I'm still advancing the profits of one particular entity that is not even public. It's a privatized company. It does not advance humanity. It does, it does not push progress forward. And I want to do something that may not be immediately relevant or applicable to the real world. And that is okay. That was a hard pill for me to swallow, which is understanding that my research, in fact, does not help the random Joe on the street, not in a direct way. But I hope that in the long term, somebody else might be able to take my results forward, do something really cool with it and apply it to the real world and do some good with it. So that is the hope. Um, and I do think that in the very, very long term, maybe we're talking, you know, 100 years, who knows if I'm really lucky perhaps I could do something that is actually meaningful and has connections to what happens a hundred years from now on. And that's very exciting. I know it's a very, very tiny chance, but I do still think the tiny chance exists and I want to work for that. Yeah. So yeah, stocking in five years. Or you could take a compilation of your research and publish a book out of it, right? A book Ooh, that's, yeah. uh, that's accessible <laughs> to, to everyone, right? Uh, and and then, then you get your TED Talk out of the way. <laughs> exactly. And then you get your own, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you get on an Oprah podcast and then, then you're, <laughs> I know I joke about that now, but that's probably where you're going to end up. And we're like, oh yeah, I, we, we, yeah. we foresaw that. We saw that coming. Saw How about you, Katrina? Gosh, well, hopefully done with the dissertation by then and um, done with, I guess, all the coursework and the PhD aspect. And then I guess it would be internship next. So mm -hmm. hopefully on internship, if not, if I finish early by some miracle also postdocing um, someplace and hoping that it leads to something exciting and it's just a continuous adventure and something yeah. that we enjoy. So for you, even though you're going the research route, you're in a clinical program, right? You said, so yes. your clinical internship is going to be, I guess, similar to what I did, right? You're going to basically yeah. work and do therapy and all that and be supervised, right? Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. Okay. That's exactly okay. it. Yeah. Even though that's not really what you want to do professionally. Right, but still, yeah, that's a process for, you need to you need to do. Yeah. yeah, it's part of the clinical program. Everyone right. needs to do the APA internship. I'm guessing that's mm -hmm. what yeah, you have to do. Yeah, yeah, do the whole matching process, like the medical yeah. school thing. Yeah. So hopefully, getting into a site that's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm gonna have someone on or yourselves that talk about that clinical matching process because I'm sure after twenty something years, it's changed a lot. It's yes, all electronic or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mm -hmm. maybe a little bit further down the line when when you've gone through it. I can ask you about it or ask someone about it because yeah, I would love to. Would yeah, because that that's those are some of the things that I feel like my knowledge is outdated because I'm sure a lot of because back in the day it was you wait by your phone on this particular day at nine wow. o'clock central. Everybody had to match time zones wherever they were, Gosh. right? And then you you just get phone calls, right? And wow. for example, you know if you get a call and it's your third choice, you can hold it until you get the call from maybe your first or second choice. You wow. See? Right. Yeah. And then so it's a, sort of a game of what, strategizing what you do when you get calls. I ended up only getting one acceptance call. And that, and, no, actually, the day of, I think, I got fourth 
out of that internship I got of the top three, I was fourth initially. And then they said one of the top three chose someplace else to go to. Oh and I got bumped God. up. Right. And then That's also awesome. every year, there aren't enough internship slots for, for the applicants. I don't know how it is today. But then sure. there's so many people who are like, even within my program uh, of different years, are like, oh, I got to apply again next year. Right. That's Getting... the exact same case. Yeah. But it's this time, like I think that. they. They have like an algorithm that they use to match people. So you get an email yeah. with your, whether you matched or whether you didn't match, and then you have to try again. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. from the stone ages. We didn't have algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows we how just, good this algorithm is? <laughs> we just had, you know, you have to make a good impression at your interview, that right, kind of stuff. Right, right, right. Yeah. 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 It's a whole process. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I think that would be a whole different discussion just about applying to internship, internship life. So today we focus on, you know, starting grad school, that mm -hmm. whole transition and all that. But I think that'll be an interesting discussion. So thank you both for your time. I really appreciate it. This was thank fun. You. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us. This yeah, was so yeah. fun and so energizing. So thank yeah, you so yeah. much. It's great to have a group. This is my first group interview and having you on different <laughs> continents is kind of cool. So I'll, yeah. have to, I'll have to get, I think three might be too much. You know what I mean? Especially for an audio podcast, people are like, who's that talking? But I think with two guests, it's perfect, right? Yeah, true. That's true. Here is a good number. Yeah, yeah. I've listened to a sports podcast with three or four people on there. I'm like, who's talking? Who are these people? <laughs> and so, so this is a very manageable number. Okay. All right. So take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much.